Welcome to the Finding God in the Body podcast. I'm Ben Riggs. Before we get into this episode, I'd like to take a second and encourage my listeners to support the podcast. There are a few ways you can do that. First, you can subscribe to the podcast, which is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. You can also share episodes that you enjoy with your friends and family on Facebook and Twitter. And finally, if you're looking for another way to support the podcast, you can order the book, Finding God in the Body, A Spiritual Path for the Modern West. It's available on Amazon.com, and you can also go to FindingGodInTheBody.com and order your book. Uh, Whichever form your support takes, I want you to know that it's much appreciated. And with all that said, we can now turn our attention towards this episode. In this episode, we're going to explore the space between atheism and fundamentalism. Over the past century and a half or so, 150, 200 years, The remarkable success that science and its methodologies has been able to demonstrate has brought us to this place in history where its epistemology has cornered the market. In the modern West, objective truth and facts have a monopoly on value. And as a result, religious life is beginning to disintegrate. Religions viewed by most people as a set of supernatural propositions that must be affirmed or denied. This position creates a chasm in society. On one side are those who validate the supernatural truth claims of religion, and on the other side are those that categorically reject the validity of any such claims. And then these two camps are commonly referred to as believers and atheists. For the better part of 15 years, I thought of myself as an atheist. The ubiquity of fundamentalist religion down here in the Deep South, which is where I live, coupled with the tacit acceptance of this false dichotomy, believers versus atheists, it forced me to side with the atheists. Nothing in me believed that God was a suitable explanation for the origins of life or the cosmos. Furthermore, the idea that an all-knowing, all-powerful creator God fashioned a world that he was so displeased with that he was forced to offer up his own son as a blood sacrifice in order to pacify his own wrath just didn't resonate with me. It didn't make any sense to me. It wasn't that I was resentful at Christianity or angry at Christianity. I was just as disinterested in reincarnation as I was heaven and hell. As a child of modernity, I just found these supernatural propositions uninteresting. They didn't resonate with me. So I found common calls with the atheists, though I always found myself to be sympathetic with spirituality. The spiritual impulse within me pulled me towards Buddhism. I found myself browsing the Buddhist section at my local bookstores and checking out meditation groups just generally interested in a contemplative spirituality which Buddhism seemed to be the embodiment of. Buddhism seemed to be devoid of these supernatural elements. Now, after spending some time in India and really getting deeper into Buddhist studies, I began to realize that this uh, seeming lack of supernatural elements was really just a Western facade. Buddhism, like all other religions, is full of supernatural elements. Reincarnation, tulkus, gods, dakinis, dharmapalas, and yidams. Now, but most of this stuff is read out in the Buddhism that's been popularized in the West by the people who have been responsible for popularizing it. They are people who themselves were looking for a religion or a spiritual path that was devoid of supernatural elements. And so as they begin to translate Buddhism into a Western language and a Western system of practice, they just read out the supernatural elements in order to meet their own goals and objectives, which is fine, but the idea that Buddhism is devoid of that is an illusion. That said, Buddhism has a very rich and very rewarding tradition of contemplative practice and philosophical inquiry, Uh, and both of them 
are very much capable of functioning independent of any supernatural truth claims. And I don't think most people will find that to be surprising. However, but Christianity does too. Christianity has a practice tradition, a contemplative lineage that is capable of functioning independent of any of these supernatural propositions. And I do think that that's surprising for most people. I know it was for me. Roughly 12 years ago, I was reading a book by the Dalai Lama. And in it, he mentioned the name Thomas Merton. I didn't know Thomas Merton from a hole in the wall, but the Dalai Lama, who I deeply respected, gave him this glowing recommendation. So I went to Barnes Noble and I bought my first Merton book, No Man is an Island. And that began my love affair with Thomas Merton, but was also my introduction to contemplative Christianity. As I read Merton, he exposed me to a depth and a clarity and an experiential dimension of Christianity of which I had no idea existed. I continued down the path that Merton placed me on. As I plunged myself into this wide array of contemplative Christian writers, ranging all the way from uh, Pseudo-Dionysus to Meister Eckhart to John of the Cross and St. Teresa of Avila, all the way up into contemporary writers like Thomas Keaton, Richard Rohr, and Cynthia Bourgeau, something began to awaken within me. Their words were resurrecting the winds of inspiration deep in my own body. It felt like a homecoming. In them, I found a practical spirituality that was consistent with my cultural background. What's more, the the view that they espouse required no particular ideological allegiance, which would have disqualified my commitment to Buddhist practice or to the principles of Buddhist spirituality that had proven to be true or effective for me. The view that these contemplative Christians offered supplemented my Buddhist practice. And the practices that they offered did nothing more than enlarge my spiritual life. It wasn't a conflict with my Buddhist background or my Buddhist orientation. It was something that enhanced it. Eventually, it got to the point where I could no longer exclusively identify myself with one tradition or the other. In fact, I'm still sort of in this bardo, so to speak. I guess you could say I'm confused, but actually I'm not confused. The confluence of these resonant threads in my spirituality and my inability to honestly label myself as one or the other is probably a more accurate representation of the richness and complexity of the human experience anyway. And interestingly enough, it's more in line with the view of selflessness found in both of these contemplative traditions. The experience of oneself beyond name and form. And so I'm comfortable with not subscribing to either the Buddhist or the Christian label. Uh, And I'm not alone in this. In the ever-developing spirituality of the modern West, identification with traditions and and labels, they are losing their significance. And not just for the pretentious quasi-intellectual reasons of I don't like to label myself. The emerging view of spirituality in the West is based loosely on this notion of pragmatism. It really comes back to what works. That's the concern that's driving the evolution or the development of this um, modern Western spirituality. And, And that's why the dichotomy of believer and atheist is a false one. Falling through the cracks of that fatuous debate are millions of people who see religion as an effective vehicle for spiritual growth and personal transformation not as a set of supernatural truth claims about the physical world. If we're talking about the origins of life or the cosmos, then yes, I'm an atheist. If I'm focused on a scientific question, then religion has no business trying to answer that question. However, 
if we're talking about moving beyond the narrow and lifeless world between our ears and reconnecting with the ground of meaning and being, then yes, I'm a religious person. Religion is still the most useful tool mankind has ever developed for exploring the depths of the human condition, tapping into these deeper levels of identity until the whole notion of self disappears and begins to recede into this experience of being that we all refer to as God. And furthermore, giving us the tools that we need to actually birth that experience of God into the world, actually transform our life, our actions, our behaviors, and through that, the world in which we live. The value of religion can't be measured by its capacity to explain away the mysteries of the material world. These mysteries properly belong to science, and it was never the primary function of religion and the fact that large numbers of people believe that religion's value consists primarily in this endeavor is strange. It shows that we value something only if it is considered a fact, which demonstrates our limited perspective or understanding of truth. Yes, something is of value only if it's rooted in truth. Truth is what substantiates a claim or an experience. But truth is not the same thing as trivia. The word truth is a representation of reality, which is a rich and vast domain. When the word truth is mistaken for the word fact, life is reduced to a myopic, single-tiered plane of cerebral existence that ignores every phenomenon that escapes measurement. Our understanding of truth must also account for all of the intangible aspects of the human experience. It, it has to account for consciousness and courage, meaning, longing, patience, and self-sacrifice. Love, for example, is not a quantifiable fact, but is an indispensable quality of truth. And this aspect of truth, strangely enough, finds its most judicious descriptions in works of fiction, not philosophical treatises. Fiction is not necessarily antithetical to truth, as any student of literature well knows. Fiction can be used as a skillful means of communicating truth. When fiction is used to communicate truth, like you see in Lord of the Rings, or when fact and fiction are united in an effort to lift truth from its historical context and place the story on a timeless plane, like you see in the Bible, it is properly called myth. And religion is a sophisticated collection of myths that are coupled with practices or rituals which enable us to participate in the story for ourselves. Myth is a system of symbols that, as the renowned mythologist Joseph Campbell once explained, point past themselves to a ground of meaning and being that is one with the consciousness of the beholder. There is always a sphere of experience that escapes the plain language of facts. This is the realm of mythology. Historical facts detail the events of times past, whereas myth tells the story of an ongoing journey, the human adventure. Since myth is not fundamentally organized around historical details, but rather around eternal truths, Myth, when properly read, invites us to participate in the journey. This journey is, in fact, the unfolding of our true life. In short, myth tells the story of mankind, not the story of a particular man, and therefore invites us to participate in the telling of that story through our lived experience. The value of religion consists not in the factual accuracy of this, these stories, but rather in their capacity to arouse within us the courage to be in the face of despair. And furthermore, to couple that inspiration with an actionable past structure that enables us to cultivate that potential or express it in our actions. The value of God, for example, is found in its ability to direct our longing, to set our gaze on the transcendent realm, or to center our identity in the selfless awareness of our heart. The word God does not explain existence away. It is not the name of the most powerful being in the universe. God is not the name of a being. 
God is a symbol for being itself, in which we participate through basic awareness. The word God calls us out of the claustrophobic, false self-identity that is at the root of all our suffering and into the life of the body. But religion is not just a series of magic words. Religion without practice is wishful thinking. Practice births God into the world through our actions. Prayer invokes the power of being in the face of fear, anger, and depression. Meditation practice crucifies the false self on the cross of silence, enabling our true self, Christ if you will, to be resurrected from the rubble of our disembodied life. This true self, not the I but the Christ within, is the impersonal or selfless quality of basic awareness that mediates our relationship with God. In the words of Rabbi David Cooper, God is not a noun, it's a verb. And when practiced rather than just simply affirmed, God enables us to overcome personal suffering, and that is the standard by which religion must be judged. William James wrote in The Meaning of Truth, The true, to put it very briefly, is only the expedient in our way of thinking, just as the right is only the expedient in our way of behaving. I don't agree with the idea that expedience is any more representative of truth than facts. I believe that they both have their place. Each represent a quality of truth. Does it work? If so, then yes, there is a spark of truth in it. Suffering brings us onto the spiritual path. We might pick up a book about spirituality, meditation, or some religion for reasons of curiosity and nothing more. But no one commits themselves to the painstaking work of spiritual practice unless they're looking for transformation. And suffering is what motivates people to change. So when we ask the question, does it work? We must understand that to mean, does religion enable us to overcome personal suffering? For example, we get frustrated when we lose our temper. Because deep down, we are aware of a greater potential. We know that our responses are limited, that our freedom is restricted by the conditioned reactions of the false self system, and we yearn to throw off the old, tired ways of the false self. The question is, does religion enable us to accomplish that goal? And the answer is, it depends. When religion is viewed as a series of truth claims that must be affirmed or denied, it does not have the ability to change our lives. It isn't even concerned with this life. It ignores the concerns of the present moment and becomes obsessed with the hereafter. However, if you reject this position, which is what creates the false dichotomy of literal believer and atheist or fundamentalist and atheist, and accept the claim that there is truth in usefulness, then you recognize the space between atheism and fundamentalism. And in that space, religion is free to focus on this life. When religion is not seen as an answer to the question of existence, but rather as a sophisticated system of practice that enables us to enter into the experience of being itself, then yes, religion has the ability to overcome personal suffering. Religion is useful. It is true in that sense. It has the ability to conquer spiritual death.